0: Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. By advancing his judicial philosophies of originalism and textualism, Antonin Scalia became one of the 20th century's most influential justices. This week, James Rosen talks about book one of his two-part biography of Antonin Scalia. It's titled, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936-1986. Rosen, who is Newsmax's chief White House correspondent, examines Justice Scalia's life prior to the Supreme Court. We talk about Nino Scalia's early years, the importance of his Catholic faith, his first years as a corporate lawyer, his teaching career at the University of Chicago and UVA, his time in government during the Nixon and Ford administrations, and his appointment to the U.S. Court of Appeals. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. James Rosen, we're talking to you on the publication day. Congratulations of your new biography of Antonin Scalia, Scalia: Rise to Greatness. It opens with a quote from his daughter Meg. He was putting on a show, but it was a great show. How did why would you choose that quote, and how does it embody Antonin Scalia?
1: Well, first, thanks for having me, Susan. It's great to be back on C-SPAN. Um, I chose that quote from uh, Antonin Scalia's youngest child, uh, the fourth of his four daughters, Meg Scalia Bryce. Because of the first part of it where she said, after he died, when people said that he was larger than life, he was. And he was that way to us as well. And then you see in the epigraph, my contribution to this was, which was to ask, he was cognizant that he was that way, right? Larger than life. And she said, oh yes, he was putting on a show, but it was a great show.
0: Throughout the book you use a nickname, uh, El Matador, which conjures up uh, jousting and enjoying being in the ring. But at the same time, you say that throughout Washington he was well-liked. How did he pull off both of these things?
1: It's no mean feat, as we both know from living here so long. Um, Scalia had an amazing mind and a crackling wit and great personal affability. I like to say that uh, he was the kid from Queens. He, he grew up on the streets of Queens. So he combined a kind of earthy outer borough Italian-American charm with an Ivy League intellect. Uh, and at times, he was, he was capable of grandeur. He would shamelessly commandeer a piano in someone's house and start belting out Christmas carols or show tunes, but at the same time of self-deprecation. Um, and it was a very winning combination. And uh, even when he was nominated to the Supreme Court in 1986, there were certain other circumstances, such as the elevation of William Rehnquist and what that would mean. But uh, he was also universally liked. That uh, the final vote on Scalia's behalf was ninety-eight to nothing. The imperfection of that vote bothered him well into the twenty-first century, and he can be seen on the C-SPAN video library online complaining about it as late as two thousand five. Let's make it a hundred, he said.
0: <laughs> who were the two that he lost, and why did it bother him so much?
1: Uh, so in Scalia rise to greatness, the whole story begins with a previously un. A published account from John Bolton, who was a young Reagan uh, D- Justice Department aide at the time, and whose job it was to inform Scalia of the final vote in the Senate, and which required some special means because Scalia was a social animal, and he was out that night on the rubber chicken circuit at a black tie dinner, uh, and John Bolton had to establish a telephone at the at the Willard to track him down and and deliver the news to him, and when he did, he said, "Nino, in essence, congratulations, you've been confirmed 98 to nothing," and the battle to get. Rehnquist confirmed from Associate Justice to Chief Justice had been so arduous, successful but arduous, they called it the Renquisition, that 98 to nothing was looking pretty good to John Bolton and the other people who managed this twin confirmation process. But on the other end of the line he just hears silence and Scalia says 98 to nothing, who were the two who didn't vote? and Bolton says well it was it was Barry Goldwater uh, and Jake Garn of Utah, uh, Arizona and Utah respectively but isn't this great you know you've been con- confirmed 98 to nothing congratulations and there's another pause on the other end of the phone and Sklee says with a hint of rebuke in his voice you mean to tell me We couldn't get Goldwater and Garn, which should have been reliable votes for a Republican nominee. And At this point Bolton tells me he got a little irritated and he said, concentrate Nino. He said, you've just been confirmed 98 to nothing. Goldwater, as it turned out, had gone home sick on the night of the vote, which was delayed, and Garn was in the hospital donating his kidney to his daughter. So finally, Scalia relents and he says, yeah, you're right. That's great. Thank you.
0: This is a theme that throughout the volume where he, he suffers losses and carries it with him for a while. We'll talk about some of those later on. So tell me how you came to write this biography.
1: So when I first came to Washington as a reporter back in 1999, one of the first things I did was to write to Anton, Justice Antonin Scalia at the Supreme Court and request an interview on Fox News stationery. In 1999, Fox News wasn't as well known as it would later become. It wasn't the industry leader. Uh, sometimes we got confused when applying uh, for credentials by people as Fox 5, the local affiliate, etc. But Scalia wrote back on Supreme Court Stationery to say, I'm a fan of Fox News. This was 1999. And to say, I have no doubt you'd conduct a dignified interview, as I assured him. He said, but I don't make a spectacle of myself by doing television interviews. It's a policy I hold as a judge. So I wrote back and I said, thank you. And I said, but what else could a spectacle, but a spectacle, could it have been? When a sitting Supreme Court Justice as Scalia had done in the 1980s, which was how I first became aware of him as a high school student, participates in a PBS program called *The Constitution: That Delicate Balance*, in which he sits alongside eminent figures like Gerald Ford and Sandra Day O'Connor and Dan Rather, and so on, to discuss hypothetical situations and how he would behave in them, uh, with with cameras present and rolling for PBS. And he wrote back, and this is rare to receive from Antonin Scalia on Supreme Court stationery. I was 30 at the time. Uh, you're right. <laughs> I probably shouldn't have done the Constitution, that delicate balance, despite the importunings of Fred Friendly, who was a friend of his, former president of CBS News. But we agreed to do off the record lunches, and we had two of those. Uh, Whereas just the two of us at his beloved AV Ristorante Italiano, uh, where we drank wine where he insisted that I eat off of his plate, and I said, Mr. Justice, I, I, he said, come on, come on, come on. So now I'm shoveling vegetables off of Justice Scalia's plate. He drove me back to my office in his car, which as any of his clerks who had a similar situation could attest is somewhat dicey situation, um, which I witnessed, um, and the contents of those lunches will remain off the record as they were intended. Um, but the amusing correspondence that went on for two years um, at which points, at various points, he said to me things like, You really know how to hurt a fellow. Um, right. That will all be in volume two. So, this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986, tells the story of Antonin Scalia's first 50 years, uh, his rise to the Supreme Court. And the second volume, hopefully just two years from now, uh, will tell the story of his Supreme Court tenure.
0: How long have you been working on it?
1: Not counting the lunches and the letters, you know, at the turn of the century, uh, about five years.
0: I want to uh, just stay on that idea of your request for cameras. Over the years that so he was uh, both at the, uh, the lower court and the high court, he would never allow C-SPAN cameras into his speeches. And in fact, sometimes organizers of events would say yes, and then we would get the word, you cannot cover Antonin Scalia's speech. What was that all about with him?
1: First, if you if you look at the C-SPAN online archive, you will see numerous entries where Justice Scalia's um interactions with students or uh, various interviews were were aired by C-SPAN so he wasn't uniform in this um, but he was asked many times by his lifelong not quite lifelong but his friend of 45 years Brian Lamb no stranger to the viewers of this channel uh, about his antipathy to cameras in the courts and then at some of his events um, where the courts were considered and uh, concerned and where the Supreme Court was concerned Scalia uh, worried that Uh, While some small segment of the American people would watch gavel-to-gavel proceedings of the Supreme Court, uh, despite their intrinsic dullness for non-lawyers, most wouldn't, and that there would be some 15-second takeout, as he called it, that would air, that would distort the meaning of what they do and reduce it to um, the most sensational news headlines, etc. That was the basis for his opposition to cameras in the court. He did get into it at times with members of the press, and he did uh, famously um, eject Um, or have confiscated, I think, the tape recorders of some reporters or student reporters at one of his events as a Supreme Court Justice. This will be covered in volume two. And Brian Lamb, who was interviewed for this book, uh, and who knew Justice Scalia very well, uh, said that Justice Scalia knew that he'd gone too far on that occasion.
0: One last question about the structure before we get into Scali- Scalia's biography and that is throughout the book you make reference and, and in fact feels like a rebuttal to prior biographies of Justice Scalia, uh, particularly John Piscubic's biography. W- why did you decide to do it, to approach it that way?
1: So um, I consider that this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, is the first accurate book-length portrayal of Antonin Scalia in print. It is the first accurate one because it is the first admiring biography of him. There were two existing biographies about Justice Scalia that were published during his lifetime. One of them he cooperated extensively with, and that was Joan Biskupik's biography. Uh, The other was um, one that came out two years later with which Scalia did not cooperate at all. That was Bruce Allen Murphy's biography. Despite the extensive cooperation granted to Ms. Biskupik, her book, like uh, Professor Murphy's, Uh, turned out uh, at the end to be fairly openly contemptuous of Scalia's jurisprudence his philosophy and his conduct on the bench. Um, Almost every phase and chapter of his life is either given very short shrift or um, uh, interpreted in the most tendentious light. And so my book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, which benefits from an enormous wealth of documentary and personal sources that were either overlooked by or unavailable to previous researchers, um, pauses the action in giving an accurate account of Scalia's life up to the age of 50 uh, occasionally to address how the previous biographers uh, treated various key phases and events and episodes in Scalia's life and shows how often they were inaccurate.
0: All right, into his life. He was born on March 11, 1936. What's important to know about little Nino's early Hmm. life?
1: Well, he was born in Trenton, New Jersey, but he moved when he was five uh, to Queens, New York. Uh, And that's one detail right there that the previous biographers both got wrong. Uh, This book makes use of a secret oral history of his life that Justice Scalia conducted in chambers at the Supreme Court in 1992, his seventh term on the court, that was only recently unsealed and he makes it very clear that he moved when he was five. The previous biographers had the ages uh, differently. Um, He loved Queens. He played all kinds of sports in the streets, stickball and basketball. Uh, His parents, his father was an Italian immigrant who came here with $400 in his pocket and not speaking English from Sicily in 1920, uh, who wound up becoming a professor of Romance Languages at Brooklyn College for 30 years. Um, uh, Scalia's mother was the daughter of Italian immigrants born in New York City. She also was an elementary school teacher. Uh, They were devout Catholics this book is really the first to explore the depths and the devotion of Scalia's Catholic faith and how it influenced him as he rose to the Supreme Court. Uh, From his immersion in Catholicism, and he was tops in his class at Jesuit-run institutions, both his high school Xavier, which was a rare Jesuit military academy, uh, and Georgetown University, also Jesuit institution, Um, from his immersion in the Catholic faith, and his tutelage at the hands of his teacher parents, and particularly his father, who was a Romance Languages professor, and who had an innate distrust of translation and any kind of effort to monkey with the text of something. Scalia emerged with a a reverence for text, for the immutability of certain inviolate, sacred texts, and I think he carried that with him into his practice of law and ultimately his work as a judge and justice.
0: He was a pre-Vatican II Catholic. Uh, What does that really mean in terms of how he practiced his faith and his beliefs?
1: Vatican II was a series of changes that the Catholic Church enacted in the early 1960s that were seen by many traditionalist Catholics as liberalizing the Church uh, unduly. And um, uh, Antonin Scalia, like another of my biography subjects, William F. Buckley Jr., both were devout Catholics uh, and both preferred the High Latin Mass, which uh, was the sort of ancient and original uh, form of the, of the ceremony. Uh, that Vatican II sort of discouraged, uh, and so Scalia's one of Scalia's daughters tells the story in this book, Scalia: Rise to Greatness. That uh, Sundays when they lived in Chicago, when he was teaching at the University of Chicago Law School in the late '70s, early '80s, uh, were especially adventurous for them because uh, Professor Scalia at that time would drive an extra half hour and through anything mm-hmm. in order to deliver his nine children to um, his and Maureen's nine children. Uh, to uh, a high Latin mass, as opposed to just any old mass.
0: Did he have a relationship with Opus Dei?
1: Scalia was not Opus Dei himself. Um, however, some of his dearest friends, um, and some of uh, one person who I've interviewed, who doesn't show up in Volume One but will show up in Volume Two, uh, was an Opus Dei priest who described himself to me as Scalia's spiritual advisor when he was a justice on the court, and with whom Scalia took uh, retreats periodically um... Scalia's Catholicism is central to his identity uh, and he himself in that secret oral history conducted in 1992 dismissed the idea that uh... his training at the hands of the jesuits uh... shaped decisively uh... his jurisprudential philosophy of originalism and textualism a lot of his biographers believe that um, and i think that um, previous accounts have not taken sufficient um, account of his of his Catholic faith, but he resisted the idea that he was grafting his faith onto his judicial decisions and opinions. He famously said, there's no such thing as a Catholic hamburger. He said the closest way, the closest thing to a Catholic hamburger we can have would be a hamburger that is perfectly made.
0: He, we talked about those disappointments. One of his first was his application to Princeton and he was not accepted why did that sting him so much
1: well until then scalia had uh, demonstrated an academic record as a young man that was truly superlative in every respect, uh, and uh, and and was active in activities. He also had a theatrical streak while in high school he performed in Macbeth and other plays. He actually acted alongside uh, Eileen Brennan who later went on to fame in Private Benjamin and other movies, The Sting. Um, it was sh- kind of a shock to him not to be admitted to Princeton. He later said it was one of the very few times in his life where he felt the presence of prejudice against his italian-american roots uh, he felt that in the interview with the princeton alumni they sort of communicated to him that in their minds he was not the princeton sort and when asked about that again in this oral history of his life that's never been published before now um, he said that uh... you know that he what 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 was meant by not the princeton sort not waspy enough didn't belong to the right ethnic background But he overcame that, obviously, and he went to the Harvard Law School, and Scalia goes to Harvard for his proud parents in Queens. It was quite something.
0: His uh, second choice was Georgetown under the Jesuits, uh, teaching the Socratic method. You write, it was a different school then, and he learned that he should approach all his earthly endeavors from the perspective of devout Catholicism. Do you want to tell me more about that, add some more color to it?
1: Um, If you go back and you look at the yearbooks from Scalia's time at Georgetown University. Um, The emphasis on Catholic ritual and teachings was much more prominent uh, than it is for today's Georgetown students. uh, there were marches in robes by, by Catholic priests and, cl- and clergy and, and, and the uh, faculty uh, that the students witnessed at the very beginning of the semester and so on. Um, and um, Scalia ate all of that up. Uh, and um, he was grateful, I think, for the Jesuit influence uh, for the rest of his life. I think he was dismayed that um, the nature of, nature of uh, Jesuitical practice changed over time and became, in his view, less rigorous, uh, uh, more committed to what might be considered liberal ideologies, etc. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's shipstation.com with the code POD.
0: He was class valedictorian. You said that he even considered the priesthood after he graduated from Georgetown, but instead chose law school, Harvard. There you write of it, it was the incubator of his originalism. So let's talk about originalism in the eyes of Antonin Scalia. What did it mean to him?
1: Justice Scalia launched, and before that as Judge Scalia on the the DC Circuit Court of Appeals, one rung below the Supreme Court, really launched a kind of revolution in how judges pursue their central business. What is the central business of a judge? What do they do? They interpret constitutional provisions and statutes that have been passed and enacted into law since then. They have two parties before them that are arguing over the law, whether it's the government and a corporation or two individuals or what have you, and they turn to the courts to say what does the law mean? Um, from their different perspectives. Uh, Scalia's approach to what we would call statutory interpretation, the central business of a judge to say, to interpret what a law means, was called originalism. And it was a revolution when he came along, because until Scalia came along as a judge and then a justice, uh, there there prevailed what liberals called the living constitution. The idea that the constitution is a living, breathing document that expands uh, as needed uh and as interpreted by judges and justices, um, to accommodate modern phenomena that the founding fathers never could have envisioned in the past, such as nuclear weapons or the internet or what have you. Uh Scalia stood athwart all that. Scalia uh, and, and those who were the champions of a living constitution would look to things that Scalia considered extraneous such as well what, did the, what was the original intent behind a law? Not just the text of the law, but what did the lawmakers mean? What did they say in their debates on the House floor? What did they print in their committee reports as a bill progressed toward a floor vote? Scalia said all that's extraneous. If you want to know the original intent of, of, of a congress or the founding fathers of a president who signed a law into law just look at the text of the law that's the intent that's the and so to find the original meaning of a law which is what a judge is supposed to do Scalia said let's just look at the text of the law and if the text is vague let's look at historical traditions and practices and so today um, very few lawyers when they're arguing cases before the Supreme Court or submitting their briefs uh, begin with some discussion of legislative history and what the intent of the legislature was. They begin, as Scalia urged, with a consideration of the text and the original meaning of the statute, to the point where even as vaunted a figure as Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan, who had a great friendship with uh, Antonin Scalia, just like Ruth Bader Ginsburg did, uh, famously said, we are all originalists now. That is Scalia's enduring legacy. It affects, because of the way judges work and courts work, every area of American life. And it that alone makes Scalia one of the most important Americans of the last hundred years.
0: So originalism and textualism are two sides of the same coin?
1: You know, one can start dancing on the head of, the pin, of a pin with this. Uh, I solicited many views on this. Um, my view of, of it is, a, is as such that where the Constitution and its provisions were concerned, and ditto for statutes passed a year ago, ten years ago, fifty years ago, Scalia's approach was the same. He wanted to know what the original meaning was. What what was it understood widely to mean at the time? That's the original meaning. How do you find that original meaning? Your first resort is to the text. So I say that uh, textualism is sort of the metal detector used to find originalism. In
0: 1959 he was introduced to Maureen McCarthy. Uh, tell me about, he proposed 90 days after they met, is that correct?
1: That's right, and yeah. they hadn't even spent a whole lot of time together in those 90 days because he was cramming for finals as a Harvard Law student. Uh, Maureen McCarthy Scalia is a central character in this book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness. As Gene Scalia said to me, the former Secretary of Labor and their son, their son, their, their uh, oldest son, uh, and a noted attorney in his own right, he said to me, you're writing a book about my father. And he said, uh, there are a lot of Supreme Court justices who made a mark in essence he said to me but i can't think of too many other people i could point you to who did what my mom did meaning maureen scalia Uh, as the justice himself liked to say she raised these kids with very little help from me Um, and uh... he said that uh... i tended to handle the constitution she handled everything else it was an extraordinary burden they raised 9 children together and he was not a, a non entity in that he was not a, a, a non figure in that he he of course was a very hands-on dad and he was home for dinner every night as he made clear to me but he um but it was Maureen Scalia who really raised the kids day to day and knew who their teachers were and made sure they associated with the right kids and and looked after their clothes and uh, as Scalia's career rises as we chart his progress in Scalia rise to greatness we see that Um, His work inevitably requires more absences from home, traveling to ABA conferences, speaking on this panel, what have you. Uh, And uh, just in the year 1976 alone, when the kids ranged in age, there were, uh, I think, eight at that point, from less than a year old to uh, 25 years of age. um, You know, he would be away sometimes for six, eight days over in Europe, uh, attending one of these academic or legal conferences and what have you. And as I write in the book, these were the hardest days for Maureen Scalia. But she really deserves a biography in her own right. She's an American uh, hero in her own right, the way she raised that family.
0: What was the essence of their relationship? You said lightning struck when they met. Mm -hmm. What, What was it really that brought them together?
1: One of Scalia's daughters stated at one of the memorial services for Justice Scalia that Maureen Scalia was, as smart as, or dare I say it, even smarter than my dad. She was his intellectual equal, and perhaps then some. She was a very formidable character in her own right, but they agreed on so much they were both devout Catholics. Um, they wanted the same things out of life as as Justice Scalia once said and the fact that they had so many children, nine children, uh, is partly a reflection of the fact that Scalia himself was an only child where there were nine brothers and sisters that could have produced children and only his parents did. So there was an onliness to his his existence. So he wanted a large family. One of his aunts later said he wanted a baseball team. He did get nine, uh, but he would joke about it that they were simply two Catholics playing Vatican roulette.
0: His uh, career before the court first stop was as a corporate lawyer with Jones Day, they have a big office right around the corner from yes. our studios here, and he spent six years. You write that it was during this period that his political conservatism became apparent. Tell me about his conservatism.
1: Scalia was described in the early 60s as uh, a Bill Buckley type of conservative and uh, Scalia never wrote much or discussed Bill Buckley all that much, but I detect that he learned a thing or two from William F. Buckley, Jr., who was a kind of mass media conservative who made conservatism palatable in the media age through his wit, his debating style, and Scalia took some of that to heart, and he even borrows one of William F. Buckley's most famous lines for one of his decisions um, in uh, 1990 where he he stated it was a case that came out of Kansas, and he said that the justices on this court are no better equipped, in essence, to um, to decide matters of life and death than nine people picked randomly from uh, the Kansas Telephone Directory. That was 1990. Buckley, in 1961, first started using a line where he would say, uh, I would sooner be governed by uh, the first 400 names in the Boston Telephone Directory than by the faculty of Harvard University. Uh, You can see that Scalia internalized from Buckley how to be a charming conservative, how to win audiences over, while arguing a conservative position, using wit and elan. Um, uh, and that was evident to Scalia's classmates early on. This One of them said he was an arch-conservative at the age of 17. He knew what he believed. He knew the rightness of what he believed. And he knew that he belonged on the Supreme Court at an early age.
0: It, it, did he consider himself a partisan Republican?
1: uh... he considered that he was a conservative um, and he uh... he understood that about himself but he also understood that once he became a judge and then a justice that his job was no longer to advance those kinds of beliefs as he might have done when he was in academia and he was writing freely of his own opinions on things he understood that the job is to interpret what the laws mean and as we've discussed he he used an originalist and textualist lens uh... to pursue that
0: He moved next to uh, UVA teaching law there for four years and in the book you write, there can be no reckoning with Scalia's jurisprudence or conduct on the court without an understanding of his academic career. Why?
1: Again, let me say a word about Joan Biskupic and her book, American Original, which came out in 2009. It was the first biography of Scalia and so Joan deserves credit for kind of building the template of a biography of Scalia and the interview she did with him were important ones and so she gets a lot onto the record in that first book flawed though I believe it to be and deserves credit for that um... and however um... that book devotes very little uh, same and the same for professor Murphy's book to Scalia's academic career at UVA where it was a very uh, tumultuous time it was the late sixties and early seventies there was campus unrest on UVA's campus at the time that Scalia taught there um... and first of all one has to understand the the sheer joy in debate that Scalia took and it was never more evident than in his classrooms Uh, in his early teaching at UVA one student told me, I interviewed like four or five of his students, that uh, when he was teaching contracts law, Scalia would literally physically run from one side of the stage to the other to assume the role of the two warring parties who were disputing a contract uh, and and would shout out from one side as one party to the conflict and, and shout out from the other as the other side. Um, and Scalia, I think, recoiled from the excesses of the student anti-war movement of the late 60s, the unrest, uh, the taking of the law into their own hands at different times, the silencing of debate. Um, and uh, all of that shaped him uh, in ways that made him a better judge and a better justice. So you really can't understand how he got to be Justice Scalia without understanding the elements of his academic career.
0: His first job in government was in the Nixon administration in the Office of Telecommunications Policy working for a man named Clay Whitehead. What was their job there?
1: Tom Whitehead was a genius and a visionary. And, um, and he had several advanced degrees from places like MIT and he had done a stint at the Rand Corporation and in 1970 the Nixon White House asked Tom Whitehead to stand up a new agency called the White House Office of Telecommunications Policy and among the earliest employees there was the general counsel 35-year-old Antonin Scalia and another of the early employees there was a young fellow not long out of Purdue named Brian Lamb who was the congressional liaison and and communications officer for this White House office of telecommunications policy. Uh, This was an attempt uh, formed by Whitehead and enlisting the legal genius of Antonin Scalia to bring coherence to what had been a very uh, scattered and messy process of forging ahead on federal telecommunications policy at the very time when there was a revolution budding in that in that field that discipline and Whitehead and Scalia applied the principles of free market economics to the launching of domestic space satellites and they secured a legal opinion that it was lawful to do so, by the way, from the assistant attorney general at the time, who was named William Rehnquist. This is one of the documents in Scalia Rise to Greatness that is appearing for the first time. This exchange in 1971 between young Antonin Scalia and young Bill Rehnquist, it's the only time where Scalia tasks Rehnquist with n- delivering an opinion to him. Um, the, the injection of free market principles to this business of launching domestic space satellites, unleashed the telecom revolution as we know it today. And in early writings of Scalia's when he was working at that agency, which have never been published before, we see him predicting the Internet. We see him predicting the privacy complications that would arise from the Internet uh, and so much else. Um, It was a formative time in Scalia's career because he was in Washington, he was in the executive branch, he was duking it out with members of Congress and with rival agencies that didn't like OTP's particular prescriptions for telecom, but they were throwing around terms in that office that most Americans that wouldn't escape their lips for another 25 years like shared computer network. And uh, at one point Scalia presides over the connection of two Pentagon communication systems that were in, non-interoperable at that point, And they became interoperable. And Scalia delivers the news and rejoices that Auto Din and this other kind of Pentagon communication system, internal system, are now interoperable. He was present at the creation of the telecom revolution. He understood its implications. He got technology and so did Brian Lamb.
0: Where was he during the Watergate years?
1: So, uh, towards the end of Watergate, Scalia had been serving as the, uh, the chairman of the Administrative Conference of the United States. It's kind of like a quasi-think tank agency for the executive branch that recommends reforms for the regulatory agencies of the executive branch. And Scalia had a good record of, of counseling reforms that were later enacted there. Um, he was nominated by President Nixon in the last days of the Nixon administration to, to take the job that Bill Rehnquist had held. At the Department of Justice, Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legal Counsel. Very important job. It's called the President's Lawyers' Lawyer. They deliver the legal opinions that say whether the executive branch can do this or not do that and so forth. Um, And Unfortunately for Scalia, Nixon resigned before the Senate could act on the nomination. He was re-nominated by President Ford in the early days of the Ford administration. Scalia liked to boast that his commission therefore was a collector's item because it was rewritten to take account of the two presidents, which is unusual for a commission. During that job, Scalia in the 1970s uh, in the post-Watergate era uh, served as the president's lawyer's lawyer and he and other committed conservatives of that era such as Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld who also worked in the Ford administration were, were committed to uh, preserving the powers of the presidency against greedy and reckless assaults from members of Congress, the news media and others who were seeking in effect to uh, neuter the presidency after Watergate uh, these, this cadre of conscientious conservative lawyers that also included Larry Silberman, later a, a famous judge, um, Robert Bork and others at the time, They're, they did not tie their, their fortunes to the lost cause of Richard Nixon. They understood that even after Watergate and its subsidiary scandals would fade from view, the country would still need a strong executive. Scalia testified on the Hill a lot. There's a lot of great back and forth with members of Congress at that time where Scalia kind of schools them because they, they did not, in most cases, match his intellect or his mastery of logic and debate or Latin. Um, and Scalia also, during this time, played a very important role in um, reforming the intelligence community and setting the rules of the road after Watergate for the intelligence community. He was even called upon to give approval on April 30, 1975, for the evacuation of our personnel from the embassy in South Vietnam via helicopter uh, because they wanted to know if it was legal to do under the War Powers Act and Scalia did grant that approval that was one of his cameo appearances most of Scalia's work even today on classified material is still classified uh, but he played a key role in covert operations uh, and in reforming the intelligence community in that time. And all of these previously unpublished writings from that phase are also in Scalia Rise to Greatness.
0: We're going to start to hear a bit of Scalia in his own words because in 1976 he argued his first case uh, before the Supreme Court, uh, Dunhill v. Cuba.
1: His only case, his only appearance oh. before the Supreme Court as an advocate.
0: Um, we have a clip, obviously it's an audio clip, but it's uh, just less than a minute long. Let's listen.
1: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it
2: please the court. The principal purpose of the governments uh, appearing as amicus in the present case is to preserve the vitality of a legal doctrine which is not itself technically at issue in the case, but which the opinion of the court below, if accepted by this court, would effectively destroy. I refer, of course, to the restrictive doctrine of sovereign immunity, if the theory of active state that respondent is arguing in this case is adopted uh, that we can expect the state trading nations to use it precisely where they previously used the uh, doctrine of absolute sovereign immunity, that is, wherever they do not wish to be held liable. How then can one avoid this absurd result?
0: You uh, write that he emerged from this uh, oral argument bloodied but ultimately victorious. What were the takeaways for him?
1: So this is the first known recording of Antonin Scalia of any kind, first of all, from 1976 when he turned 40. Previously, he had appeared as a student on nineteen uh, fifties quiz shows and student answer programs and debates. None of the videos or the films of those uh, appearances survive. So this is the earliest recording of Antonin Scalia. Um, in later years, he looked back on this experience and he he noted how he was able to go eight minutes into his presentation before the Supreme Court arguing an amicus brief that means the government wasn't really a party to the case they're just sort of offering a friend of the court opinion on how the, the justices should rule uh, that he went eight minutes without anybody interrupting him and he didn't like just sitting sitting there and reading the brief that he had already submitted he wanted to mix it up and that's what he later practiced on the Supreme Court in terms of oral argument he doesn't want to hear the brief again let's get to the issues let's argue it out he went eight minutes without being asked anything and that sort of unnerved him finally and we didn't hear this clip the first justice to address Dress address Antonin Scalia in the Supreme Court is Thurgood Marshall. And Marshall asks a somewhat imprecise question, and it sends Scalia stammering, sort of like Ralph Cramden in The Honeymooners. He's just kind of, you know, flustered. And uh, and he doesn't really recover from this because the imprecision in the line of questioning persists a little bit before Scalia is able to refocus it. Um, and so when I say that he emerged bloodied but unbowed, he under the, the government won or or the, the side that the government was favoring won the case in the end. The justices sided with with Antonin Scalia's argument, Assistant Attorney General Scalia's argument. But he realized, I think, from that that event that uh, he had to be even though as skilled as he was in debate from his years as a high school student and through college and law school, that he had room to grow and room to improve, and that when met by an inscrutable or unintelligible adversary in argument, the, the, the need on the, on the part of the person doing the arguing is to somehow harness this to your own points and put it back on track.
0: After Gerald Ford lost the election in 1976, Antonin Scalia went back to teaching at Chicago Law School, but also took a post at the American Enterprise Institute here in Washington. Uh, During this period, he was very visible, writing, speaking uh, panels and that sort of thing, which would ultimately provide a lot of material for people doing research on a possible confirmation process later on. Was he um, building his case through what he was doing during that time period, cognizant of the? of uh, the implications it might have for future consideration?
1: In the existing biographical literature of Antonin Scalia, there is what I call the careerist narrative. The idea that in his various pronouncements, writings and opinions and so on, he was engaged in some kind of relentless campaign to advertise to powerful people, whether it was Cheney and Rumsfeld in the Ford era, or whether it was President Reagan later on, uh, that he was uh, reliable and could be uh... relied upon to deliver the right kind of opinions and so forth and i interviewed people who work with scalia at all points across his career and they used a barnyard epithet for that kind of analysis of his career. Antonin Scalia's rise to the Supreme Court, which is charted in this book, Scalia's rise to greatness, was not the product of careerist cunning, or of uh, bending his opinions or tailoring his opinions to suit some presumed more powerful individuals. Um, Scalia believed what he believed, and it was it was rooted in his Catholicism, his law school training, um, and his belief in the separation of powers and the role of a limited judiciary. Um, and so I don't think he was advertising uh when he was at University of Chicago he was as you say compiling a, an enormous record of pronouncements for example it was uh during his uh, tenure at Chicago that he made his first public comments on Roe versus Wade um, but interestingly when he finally was nominated to the Supreme Court in 1986 by President Reagan as i mentioned um, it was paired with an elevation of Um, of Associate Justice William Rehnquist to be Chief Justice. And that drew all the firepower and so not too much attention was paid by the Democratic senators on the panel at the time uh, to Scalia's history of writings and and speaking.
0: Let's listen to a little bit of him from this period. This was an AEI debate on the Imperial Judiciary.
1: 1978.
0: Excuse me, that's right, 1978, December 12th of that year.
2: What the argument is about in most of these cases most of these cases is not whether there's a right or not, but whether in fact, the right has been adequately observed or not. And the courts are increasingly willing to set themselves up as the judges of that fact. Uh, That is one source of the difficulty. A second source is simply the, uh, you can speak very facilely of of rights. Uh, Where are their rights and where are there not? That is another judgment that the courts have been increasingly willing to arrogate to themselves in the abortion situation, for example, whether indeed the right that exists is is the right of the woman who wants an abortion to have one or the right of of the uh, unborn uh, child uh, not to be aborted. Uh, Who knows? Uh, In the past, that was considered to be a societal decision which would be made through the
0: democratic process.
2: But now the courts have shown themselves willing to make that decision for us
0: as an example of his thinking what do we learn
1: so I was just saying that uh, it was during his Chicago tenure that he made his first public comments on abortion and you just showed them um, and I think it aligns very neatly with uh, how his jurisprudence later played out um, his view that uh, abortion uh, both as a matter of, of legal principle and also as a matter of uh, tradition and historical practice in the United States was a matter best left to the states to decide rather than the nine justices of the Supreme Court Uh, and that was reflected in his later jurisprudence and precisely what he advocated for was ultimately what happened just last year in the Dobbs case.
0: During this period, he, along with his then great friend Robert Bork, became major contributors to a new organization suggested by law students called the Federalist Society. Uh, What role did he play? And ultimately, would you comment on how significant the Federalist Society has become?
1: Scalia, when he was at the University of Chicago Law School, was solicited by a woman named Lee Lieberman Otis, an early founder of the Federalist Society, later a clerk for Judge Scalia and then for Justice Scalia. uh... she solicited him to be the first uh, campus faculty advisor for this new group the federalist society on the campus of university of chicago law school in nineteen eighty two similar chapters were being formed at the same time at yale and elsewhere but it was really a fledgling group of young law students who wanted to counter what they considered the liberal uh, orthodoxy that was prevalent on law school campuses at the time uh... scalia served as readily as the first faculty advisor. Uh, Someone said of him in this period if you ask Nino for a spark you'll get the Chicago Fire. And there he was immediately uh, having been enlisted in this cause uh, finding office space for this new fledgling group, uh, finding them uh, funding through grants, uh, making connections, making phone calls, housing some of the students in his and Maureen Scalia's home when they needed it. Um, And he played an, an extraordinary role in the development. Of uh, the Federalist Society. Today, of course, we know the Federalist Society as uh, the single most influential uh, group of lawyers, perhaps, in America. It's a group of conservative lawyers. Uh, it's not just for students anymore, they have chapters around the world for practicing attorneys. Uh, and Scalia remained involved with it for the rest of his life, not only lecturing at occasional galas and anniversaries and so forth, but also teaching uh, during the summer months when the Supreme Court justices are off for the summer. Uh, for Federalist Society gatherings, uh, continuing legal education programs, what have you.
0: A little more than 15 minutes left with James Rosen on volume one of his two volume Antonin Scalia biography, just released today. Uh his next stop is the where really his life dream was the a DC circuit court. But on the way, and this goes back to your comments about the careerism narrative, he actually turned down an appointment to the Seventh Circuit Court. So what that, that's a big gamble. He may never ever get chosen again. Well what can we learn about him from that?
1: The predecessor event there was that when the Reagan administration took office in January uh nineteen eighty one. Uh, Scalia put in for the job of Solicitor General of the United States. This was a position that Robert Bork had previously held. The Solicitor General of the United States represents the federal government in legal cases that go up to the Supreme Court and frequently argues those cases before the Supreme Court. That was the job Scalia wanted, and he was passed over. And then he was passed over when President Reagan named uh, uh, an individual to fill a vacancy on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which again is the one rung below the Supreme Court, and some say the second most powerful court in, in America. And he was passed over in favor of Robert Bork. And then when the first vacancy uh, occurred on the Supreme Court, President Reagan honored a campaign pledge and named the first woman to the court, Sandra Day O'Connor. Uh, and so Scalia had effectively been passed over uh, three times in about seven months. I call this chapter. Uh, bitterly disappointed because he said, he told Joan Biskupic that he was bitterly disappointed at not being chosen for the Solicitor General job. It went to Rex Lee, the father of the current Utah Senator Mike Lee. Um, and I quote from Tom Petty in this chapter The waiting is the hardest part. Uh, finally, in uh, the spring of 1982, a vacancy opened up again on the D.C. Circuit Court, and Scalia was nominated for it. Before that happened, though, he was offered a seat on the Seventh Circuit the Court of Appeals, which operates out of the Midwest and Scalia really um, had cut his teeth on administrative law. To most lawyers, it's the dreariest and most dismal subject of the law you could, you could want to engage, but Scalia loved administrative law. The powers of the regulatory agencies versus Congress, how much deference the courts should give to the, re- the decisions of the regulatory agencies, and the Seventh Circuit didn't have much of that. The, sec- the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, their main fare of their docket is administrative law. So as he told uh, Joan Biskupic again in their interviews, he said, hell, I'll wait, he decided and that gamble, Scalia was a veteran poker player, paid off.
0: So when he was at the D.C. Circuit Court, uh, there were a couple little notes that I wrote for myself just, and these are not about his jurisprudence, but about him and his personality. He brought the first, the court's first word processor into the court. Yes. Um, He used his clerks differently than the other judges did, including hiring a counter clerk. Yes. Um, he annoyed the chief judge by editing his drafts. <laughs> it, 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 uh, I'm sure he uh, learned his lesson from that. And he developed a lifelong friendship with another judge on the court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So, wrap that all up for me. I don't want to spend too much time uh, with the time we have left. But, what do we learn about Antonin Scalia through these things that I just listed?
1: So again, he had a, an affinity for technology dating back to the early 70s when he was involved with the telecom revolution, and he was the first judge to, in the DC Circuit Court of, uh, of Appeals, to use a word processor. Um, and yes, he, he struck up a famous friendship with a lady who had been a judge on that court two years. Uh, running when he was appointed. Uh, she had been nominated by President Carter, and that was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, is the first book to publish the early correspondence, the internal correspondence between uh, RBG and Nino as they addressed each other and themselves. Uh, and so we see these uh, handwritten notes, uh, correspondence, memoranda, draft opinions flying back and forth between their chambers. Again, none of this has ever been published before, and it really chronicles. The germination and the blossoming of their friendship. Uh, In these internal documents, you can see RBG alternately flattering, needling, cajoling, pressuring, provoking Antonin Scalia, Judge Scalia, on various subjects before him, various cases before them, testing the limits of his commitment to the First Amendment under Times v. Sullivan. Uh, The interplay between them is just sparkling. And for his part, Antonin Scalia lets his hair down in these opinions and these exchanges with RBG, whom he comes to trust so totally that in one of these memos that's published here for the first time he designates his vote on a case to her in his absence uh... saying that he knows that she'll see it the correct way and she has my proxy vote in that instance but he lets his hair down he says at one point he apologizes for a late opinion and says sloth that i am and at times he says yes when she implores him to be unanimous let's be unanimous uh... at times he apologizes and 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 thanks uh... rbg for helping him to see the error of his ways in a particular case uh... it's a fascinating uh, dynamic between them. We all celebrate their relationship as kind of the avatar of comedy amongst intellectual combatants today. Uh this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, shows the birth and flowering of that relationship.
0: You report that there's a trove of correspondence between the two. It, do you see a separate book there on the, the correspondence between mm.
1: them? Possibly. Um uh, at the same time that uh, that RBG is needling Nino and cajoling him and, and, and trying to uh, nudge him toward one jurisprudential outcome or, or another then at the very same time she's writing to another judge on the court say robert bork saying here's how we have to address nino's challenge uh... and uh... you know that's part and parcel of judging is the rallying of others to your point of view to try and fill out a majority
0: we have just ten minutes left and of course the important thing is the work he did as a judge on the court and we will allow readers to find more about that in your book i want to fast forward to june seventeenth nineteen eighty six uh... And this is ronald reagan talking about uh... Antonin scalia when he was sworn in, but I wanted to pull it to, talk, to see how Ronald Reagan characterized Antonin Scalia.
2: Associate Justice Antonin Scalia is also a brilliant judge. He had a distinguished career as a lawyer and as a professor of law before joining the Court of Appeals nearly four years ago. There he became known for his integrity and independence and for the force of his intellect. Chief Justice Rehnquist and Justice Scalia, congratulations to both of you. With these two outstanding men taking their new positions, this is, as I said, a time of renewal in the great constitutional system that our forefathers gave us.
0: So that was the swearing-in, which was three months after he was nominated by President Reagan, and talk about those three months and what it was like. You referenced earlier two at the same time, and the real lightning rod was William Rehnquist. So how did the administration prepare for the dual hearings?
1: So again, this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness" has uh, publishes for the first time a lot of the documents uh, that were generated at the Reagan White House and the Department of Justice uh, to support this twin nomination of Scalia and Rehnquist to the Supreme Court. And it shows that um, the White House devised an elaborate, Campaign on behalf of Scalia, probably more elaborate than any su- uh, Supreme Court nominee had received to that point, to cultivate various voting blocks in the Senate uh, and also to capitalize upon the fact that Scalia, if confirmed, would become the first Italian American on the court. Um, and during those three months, um, Scalia was eager to go and just. Uh, those who worked with him, who I interviewed for the first time, who were sort of his Sherpas through the process, said it was like he was meant to do this. It was like he'd been waiting his whole life to do this. Uh, and when he had the sit-downs with the senators, uh, some of them still around today, uh, like Mitch McConnell, uh, and uh, until recently, uh, Pat Leahy, Chuck Grassley, some of these senators are still around today. Uh, when he met with the senators, it was easy for Il Matador, who was so skilled in debate and logic and, and rhetoric, uh, to field their inquiries and to charm them, as he had done so many others.
0: I have one clip from the hearings. I thought it would be interesting to hear Senator Biden, who is the lead Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee, in an exchange with nominee Antonin Scalia and during the confirmation hearings. Let's watch.
2: I have tended to take a similar contrary approach to, uh, in public talks. It is neither any fun nor any use preaching to the choir. And then you go on and... and I'm trying to fight against that here, Senator, Mike. I'm, I'm trying pardon. to fight against that inclination here. I... Well... Uh, <laughs> I, let yourself go (laughs) Uh, because it's pretty boring so far. Uh, I can't answer that question without knowing what you mean by the right of privacy. Sure, you can acknowledge whether or not you believe there is in fact, let's just start over again. Clean the slate. Do you believe that Americans as a whole believe that there is a right to privacy? That they have inherent that they think they have a right to privacy. Do you think that's a deeply and profoundly held belief by American society? I mean, do you have any doubt that Americans believe? No, I, no, I, 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 I'll,
0: I'll give you that, Senator. I think. I Good think that's man. What I, think. I tell
1: you, we're getting there. All right.
0: So, how were the hearings overall? How would you characterize them?
1: Uh, They were brief compared to the hearings that had earlier occurred for the elevation of Justice Rehnquist to be Chief Justice. uh, And they were far more cordial than what had been called the Rehnquisition. Um, In the interchanges with Senator Biden of Delaware at the time, we must remember the senator was the ranking Democrat on the committee, which was controlled by the Republicans. Uh, It would only be a few months later in in the midterm elections that the Democrats would uh, reclaim control of the Senate and that Joe Biden would then become the chairman. Of the Senate Judiciary Committee and preside over a number of Supreme Court confirmation processes, including Robert Bork and uh, and uh, and Clarence Thomas. Um, in the exchanges with Scalia, this book, Scalia: Rise to Greatness, presents the first real critical examination of Joe Biden's role. In the Scalia confirmation process, uh, the president today likes to boast about how many confirmation processes he's been involved in. He really didn't distinguish himself in the Scalia process. Uh, if you look at the transcripts, which this book examines carefully, uh, there were various moments in which uh, then Senator Biden had to retreat, uh, brought up things that were of no interest even to his fellow Democrats and served only to extend the proceedings. Points where he had to withdraw questions and apologize, uh, and he even said publicly that he thought that um, that Judge Scalia would not be measurably more conservative than the man effectively whom he was succeeding on the court, uh, the retiring Chief Justice Warren Burger. It was Renquist who was becoming Chief Justice, but that vacancy on the court was being filled by Antonin Scalia. And uh, Senator Biden's suggestion that, that Scalia was no more conservative than, than Warren Burger had been was precisely the opposite of what every informed legal scholar had been saying in the press for 90 days at that point.
0: Five minutes left, and and, and we, as we discussed earlier, going into these hearings, he had an extensive record from his AEI days and his teachings and uh, public appearances. Also had jurisprudence, a legal record from his time on the, the district court. He had a, he, the, uh, the, circuit the circuit court. court. Sorry, yeah. excuse me. Circuit, circuit court of appeals. Um, did um, he had a unanimous vote ultimately in the Senate, as we said earlier, ninety eight to to nothing. Did any of the Democrats who voted for him come to regret that vote that you know of?
1: I don't think so. I think everyone recognized uh, Scalia's intellect, his fitness. The American Bar Association had given him, him its highest rating. Um, uh, they had doubts about his commitment to. Um, individual liberties, let's say that were important to them, uh, such as the right to uh, constitutionally protected abortion or, or affirmative action programs, uh, Scalia didn't think that those particular programs and those policies were rooted in the law, um, and he thought that if if uh, the people wanted those programs, they shouldn't be using the courts to achieve them. They should be using their state and 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 federal legislatures to enact them as laws. Uh, but no, I think um, uh, what transpired later in Supreme Court confirmation processes, the ugliness of the processes that we've seen since then. Um, I think most people would look back on, on Scalia's confirmation and say there was a model of cordiality.
0: Your biography suggests that from the earliest days, people saw him as headed for the Supreme Court. We have three minutes left. I'm going to play a clip uh, of him with one of the interviews he gave to C-SPAN about uh, this is when he was on the Court of Appeals about possibly being nominated to the Supreme Court. You can't pick up a magazine or a a newspaper that writes about this court in which they don't mention you and Judge Bork and lately they've mentioned you a lot more than Judge Bork because of the Graham Redmond decision, as an obvious candidate for the Supreme Court. What
2: does that do? Uh, I'm sure your friends must say something to you about that, uh, your colleagues, is it, does it bother you? <laughs> uh, well, uh, Mr. Mr. Lamb, you, you, you must know that it is a, uh, um, your, your name being mentioned for, for a job like that is, is about the you know, that plus, uh, plus whatever a token on the New York subway now costs will get you into the New York subway. It's very much a, a, a matter of lightning striking.
0: Well, I guess the question is, in this town, what's the matter with being directed in a career aspiration?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a worthy question. Uh, Scalia's defenders, his most ardent defenders, his family members, his former clerks, have always resisted or bristled at the idea that the Supreme Court was an ambition that he harbored early on. Um, in fact, he did, and this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, tells this story for the very first time, having interviewed um, a priest who was one of Scalia's early childhood friends, and to whom in the summer of 1959, never before revealed, uh, this, this friend was headed towards Opus Day. And he asked Scalia, what are you headed towards? They were just 22 years old. And Scalia said, I'm headed to this, I, I'm going to the Supreme Court. And he said, how are you going to do that? He said, I'm going to work for this law firm, which was Jones Day. They have a Washington division, which Jones Day did at the time. I will be sent to Washington, and I will rise. And that story's never been told before. And this priest still alive in his 80s is an unimpeachable source. Um, and. As you say, there's nothing wrong with being directed early on. Charles Schulz, the creator of Peanuts, knew from the age of five that he wanted to be a cartoonist. Scalia had this ambition early on. He knew what the Supreme Court was. He knew why he belonged there. And all of us, including Scalia's family and clerks and and ardent defenders, are are better off that he had that insight and acted on it as he did.
0: James Rosen's book is called Scalia: Rise to Greatness. Publishing today. March the 7th, and it is the first of a two-volume biography. Thanks for giving us an hour. Thank you. James Rosen is the author of Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 through 1986. And he's the Chief White House Correspondent for Newsmax. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.